In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Today is the second day after the Feast of the Nativity, and um, the readings that we read are specific to this day, and we read from the Gospel of uh, St. John in the first chapter, which speaks about the Incarnation. And one of the things that's mentioned in this passage is the when the Incarnation of Christ in his incarnation, how is it that the people received him? And it says in verse 11, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. So his own means what? When he says he came to his own, he came to his own people. He came to the people that he had been their God from the beginning. He came to the Jewish nation, the people who God had been caring for, protecting, guiding, um, sending the prophets, preparing for salvation, sending them all of the kind of the, 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 the sacrifices, everything that they needed for their life and for their salvation from the very beginning, this is God who was uh, with them from the beginning. And yet it says here that when he came in the flesh, they rejected him and they did not um, receive him. What are some of the things that he had done for them all throughout history that they could see his love for them from the beginning? He told them, or he told Abraham at the very beginning to leave his home and to go to a strange land. Why did he do this? Because he wanted to prepare the land, which was to be the promised land, the land of Israel for his people, many, many, many generations in the future. He started this plan from, from much earlier. He told Moses how to force Pharaoh to let the people go, and he supported this service, this ministry, his, 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 um, you know, his prophethood by sending the plagues and doing all these different miracles to support him. He told the people how is it that they should offer sacrifices, how they were to build the tabernacle, everything that they needed to do so. He told Joshua how to defeat the people in the city of Jericho by going around the city. He saved Daniel from the lion's den. He did so many things throughout the history of Israel. That there's no way even to list them all to demonstrate to these people that he loved them, that he cared about them, that he wanted um, a good future for them. But we know that in the end, the Jews rejected the authority of God. And actually, St. Stephen, when he was speaking to the Pharisees and the other Jews uh, about how is it that the Israelites um, responded to all of the, the loving kindness that God showed them, he says here, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, meaning the prophets who were prophesying about the coming of the Messiah, even those prophets they had killed, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Receiving the law by the direction of angels refers to the receiving of the tablets of the Ten Commandments. The Jews believe that the angels actually delivered the tablets of the Ten Commandments to Moses when he was on Mount Sinai. So here St. Stephen is making a similar argument. He's saying all throughout our history, God has been doing so many things for us, but you have rejected his work time and time and time again, rejected his prophets, killed them, rejected his commandments, uh, you know, and, and disobeyed them. So here, St. Stephen is saying the same thing. The people rejected all that God has done, and even when God had sent, you know, all these prophets and they were rejected, he did not give up on the people yet. He did not give up on them. He said, no, they rejected all of my prophets. There is something more that I can do. 
And then, of course, we know in the parable of the wicked vine dressers, where in the parable, this man who was the owner of a vineyard, um, he, he, he sets these stewards in charge of his vineyard, and he goes on a journey. And then um, he keeps sending his servants to the vineyard to collect of the harvest, and they keep rejecting the servants. And then finally, he says his own son, he sends his own son, and they reject the son and kill him. This parable that the Lord gave was to describe this situation saying all of these prophets that God had sent you killed them you, you you rejected them and now finally I'm sending my own son and you are rejecting him um, as well um, we know that the people continued to disobey God how is it they disobeyed him they made the golden calf and worshiped it at the same time that Moses was on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. They rejected all the warnings of Jeremiah when he told them, unless you repent of your sins, God is going to deliver us into the hands of our enemies. They rejected him too. And in the end, they were delivered into the hand of their enemies. Even at the time of Christ, like they turned the marketplace, or sorry, they turned the temple into a marketplace. The place that God had set apart and consecrated for the worship of him, they turned it into a marketplace and they bought and they sold. So in every way, when St. John tells us that the people did not receive him, they did not receive him. They did not receive him from the very beginning, even up until this point. The people were constantly fighting, fighting against the will of God. And even though they had periods of time where they were obedient, period of time where they were repenting, but very shortly afterward, after whatever crisis that they were in passed, they very quickly fell back in into the old habits. And we see this is like a pattern that we see even in the book of Judges, which is one after the other after the other. The people are living in sin. God delivers them into their enemies. They cry out for God's help. God raises up a judge who will be the leader of the people to deliver them for their enemies. They stay good for a while, and then they fall back into sin again, and the whole cycle repeats again and again and again. And maybe we can even identify in ourselves the cycle, that there are certain times where we turn to God in need and in help, and then when things are going well, maybe we begin to go astray again and, and go far um, again from God. So what then was the purpose of this incarnation, which kind of like was the culmination and the ultimate kind of event that the Lord um, did in response to all of this, in response to all of the history and all of the, the, the attempts that God made to reach to the people, his ultimate act of love and mercy and salvation was the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the purpose of the incarnation was not the same as what all the prophets before had done or had said. His purpose was not to give them more commandments. His purpose was not to try to reform them um, again in the same way as before by just giving sermons. Of course, we know that the Lord gave sermons and he taught and he explained to people the will of God, but so had all of the many prophets that had come before. Here, actually, we see what the Lord is doing is he is saying, my people are wicked. I will use the wickedness of my people in order to bring them ultimate salvation. If the only thing that can be counted on from these people is they continue to act wickedly, they continue to disobey me, they continue to do what is wrong, then I will even bring them salvation through these actions. Even through the sinful and wicked actions of the people, I will bring them salvation almost as though it is like by force. Almost like, okay, like, like you're, you are standing against every act of love that I am giving to you. I will now use even your disobedience and your wickedness against you to bring you salvation almost against your own will. 
If you are not willing to humble yourself and to follow me, then I will use your pride to save you. And it's really an amazing story of salvation, the way that the Lord brings to us. Of course, this does not um, cancel our free will. Of course, every single person is, is free to choose whether they want to follow Christ or not. But in the offering of salvation to all the people, what is it that God did? He said, I will, I will offer it to you even when you reject it. I will offer it to you. Even though you do not receive me, as, as we read in John 1, 11, says the people did not receive him. Even though you don't receive me, I'm still going to give it to you. Imagine like you have someone who is coming like to a house and, and he has a gift with him and he wants to enter into the house to give the gift. But the people are rejecting this. They don't want they don't want you to come in. They don't want this person to come in to their house. And so he's trying to figure, how can I give you the gift without, um, without you allowing me in? And so this is what Christ did, is he found a way to force himself into the house, to leave the gift there, and then, okay, I, I gave you what I had to give. I gave you what was necessary for you. Do you want to open the gift? It's up to you. Do you want to make use of the gift? This is up to you. But you have it now. You didn't want me to offer it. You didn't want me to give it. You kept pushing it away every time I tried to give it to you. So I'm even going to use your, your, your irresponsiveness and your irresponsibility, and I will still do um, offer you salvation through that. Because, of course, we know that the way that the Lord offers salvation to the people was through his crucifixion. And, it's, and the crucifixion was actually an act of rejection. The people, in, while they are rejecting him, he is saving them in the same moment. This is why when the Lord was on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They don't know that they are acting against their own self-interest. They don't know that what they are doing now, they are rejecting the one who came to save them. But nevertheless, let this action of my own sacrifice and my own crucifixion be what brings them the salvation even without them realizing it or understanding it. And also Moses had said about these people that they are stiff-necked. He said in Exodus 34, Then he said, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are stiff-necked people, pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. And this is certainly what God did. He says, pardon our iniquity our, and sin and take, uh, take us as your inheritance, right? The people were stiff-necked, the people were stubborn, the people uh, rejected God, and yet the Lord still had mercy on them, pardoned them, and took them um, as, uh, uh, as, as his own, as his own children. What are some things we can learn from this? The first is God's love is beyond comprehension. There is no way for us to fathom how is it that, that after being treated the way that he was by his children, by, by the people whom he set apart, by the people whom he is saving, by the people who he's providing for, by the people that he fed in the wilderness for 40 years, that even after this, and, and the ones whom he set free from slavery, that they are still rejecting him, and yet God is still showing them love. God is still patient. God is still showing them mercy. And we read... Um, when St. Paul spoke to the Romans in Romans 8 where he said, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Add to this list even our own desire and rejection, like our own, our own rejection of God 
does not separate us from his love. Now, maybe we are not showing him love, but this does not end his love for us. This doesn't cause him to stop loving us, even though we are um, acting um, disobediently to him. What else we can learn is God's ways are beyond finding out. In Romans 11, it says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Who could have understood from the very beginning what the plan of salvation was? What is it that God was going to do and how he was going to solve this problem of these disobedient people that are constantly rejecting him? Only God knew. Only he could have devised such a plan and, and that no one else could understand. The third thing we learn is no one can stand against God's will. There is no one who can defeat him. It says in Acts 4.26, The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. But in the end, no one could accomplish their plan. No one could defeat him. Satan couldn't defeat him. Our own lack of submission to him couldn't defeat him. Nothing that could have been done could have prevented the act of salvation that he accomplished in the incarnation. Even our own rejection of him could not have stopped him from offering it to us. Again, maybe each of us decides whether we want to accept this gift and, and work with it and to receive and accept the salvation. But nothing, no act of any human being could stop him from offering it. He is now offering it to every one of us for us to receive. Also, we learn that God covers our sin with his grace. He says, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Meaning the more that we sin, when sin abounded, the more the grace of God abounded. The more we rejected him, the more he didn't reject. He kept, he kept working. He kept trying. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament as well. There was no act of ultimate rejection by God. There was periods of rejection, and the periods of rejection were not intended to be um, just as, as, a, as a, um, a show of God's anger or a show of God's wrath alone, but they were intended to teach some kind of lesson. And the moment that the people responded positively, the moment that they came back and they, they apologized, they repented of their sin, God was right there again. God was um, working with them again. God was like still their father and their God. So God covers our sin um, with his grace. And he doesn't do this uh, because of our goodness. He does it because He his goodness, because he is goodness. His nature is goodness. So everything that he does is an act of goodness for us. Sometimes his acts of goodness look to us as being they are not good. Right? Sometimes when we see how, what, how God works and what he allows, maybe our first instinct is to think, why is it God allowing this? Because it is not good. But if you look throughout history and you see the way that God has dealt with the people and his patience and his mercy that he has had on us in the act of salvation, we can only conclude that God is good. We can only conclude that God is even willing to suffer for our sake and that all he allows for us is good, even when we don't recognize it, even when we don't realize it, and that our sin he covers with his grace. Um, the last point I want to mention is that God will not allow anything to destroy the church. Um, sometimes maybe we live with this general feeling that, you know, the world around us is filled with wickedness and, and the world is a threat to us and the world wants to destroy our way of life. The world doesn't want us 
to believe what we do. The world is attacking us and trying to undermine our teachings and our faith. And this maybe makes us to feel a little bit like victims, like we are victims of a system that is stronger than us. And at any time they can crush us and any time they can they can they can they can cancel us. Right. Whereas what is it that we read in Isaiah 54 it says no weapon formed against you shall prosper and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. The God who is able to devise such a plan of salvation for his children that lasted thousands of years since even the, the beginning of the creation of, of, of humanity, that he is able to provide us the things that we need without, without us even understanding it, and before we even realize it. This God is not going to allow us to perish. He is not going to allow us to be consumed. He's not going to allow the world to destroy us, but he will stand with us and he will, it says what, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. There is nothing that can destroy us except our own choice to leave. Our own choice to depart from God is the only thing that can cause us to fall. Nothing can take us from the hand of God. Nothing can destroy the church and, and and by this, I mean nothing can destroy the spirit of God that is in us. You know, we see many examples of buildings being destroyed. Um, this is not what I mean by the church. The church is the spirit of God dwelling in the people. Nothing can take away the spirit of God dwelling in the people. But we can, um, can willingly forfeit it. I can choose to meditate on the worldly things. I can choose to reject this spirit of God that is in me and instead fill myself with the worldly things, with the wicked things. And in there, yes, I, 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 I can lose, right? And there I can be defeated. But this is a personal choice. This is a choice that I make. It is not something that is imposed upon me. We read in about when we read the Synexarian about all these stories of the martyrs, you know, Physically, they are physically victims, like they are physically attacked, they are physically uh, persecuted, and many of them, of course, die or injured for their faith, right? God is not saying, I will necessarily protect you from experiencing this, but he says, I w those people, those martyrs, we see in them a strength of spirit, a uh, strength of faith that no one can conquer, that no one can destroy. Not only that, but their faith causes the people around them to believe and to convert. Even some of their oppressors and persecutors, like we read in so many of the stories um, in the Synexam about this man, Arianus the governor. Arianus the governor who was, who was like the, the, the mastermind behind so many of the persecutions of the Christians in Egypt. And yet even this man, he ended up converting to Christianity and being martyred himself. Why? Because he saw the continual faith of Christians and that they could not be defeated. He could destroy their body, but he could not de destroy their spirit. And so we see this, that God will not allow anything to destroy us. He, he is the architect of salvation. He is the one who is bringing us to himself. And there is no force that is able to prevent that, let alone our own will, our own desire. If I choose to reject then he, it will be rejected. But he offered all that he could and he gave it all for us. So in, in this um, season of nativity, of course, we are celebrating the incarnation of our Lord and we see how this act of love came despite all of our rejections of him throughout history. So we are thankful for him for all that he does. So let us meditate on his act of love. And when we see 
that God allows painful things to happen in my life, let's not jump to the conclusion that he doesn't know what he's doing or that why, why, are, why is he doing this or maybe feeling bitter toward God because he allows things. When we see actually the depth and the magnitude of the love of God, we should never see God as being our enemy. We should never see God as being someone who doesn't know what he's doing or is incapable of protecting us or doesn't know what is best for us. And glory be to God forever. Amen.